download the transcript and, and you can look at it to your heart's content. Okay? So let me open us in prayer. Father, as I prayed this morning or earlier, uh, we desperately need your spirit to work within us um, a true transformative response to your word. Lord, we flatter ourselves to think that um, we can anticipate that in our own strength. And so we pray that you would alert us, create within us an alert spirit and work within us uh, a true uh, transformative response to all that you have revealed of yourself and your saving purposes. Lord, because if you don't act in that way, then everything we do this afternoon is vain. and We don't desire that. So for your honor and glory, Lord, uh, work among us this afternoon. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as I mentioned, I want to talk about church membership. And, but you'll see very quickly that this is a little bit of a, a, a bigger issue because there's really three questions I want us to work through this afternoon, three questions that really come to bear on this larger topic. And the first question is this. Does Scripture require every believer to be in a committed relationship with the local body? Well, you probably anticipate the answer to that, that the answer is yes, of course, but let's look at that in detail. Second question is, why is a commitment and submission to the local church so vital for God's redeemed people? And then thirdly, how as a body can we best recognize and advance Scripture's high view of the local church? Those are the three questions we want to ask ourselves this afternoon. So let's begin with the first question. Does Scripture require every believer to be in a committed relationship with a local church? As we consider what Scripture says about our relationship to the local church, we recognize that there isn't any explicit command anywhere in the Scriptures that says go and join the local church. But despite the absence of these explicit statements, the necessity of a believer's identification with and submission to the authority of a local church is strongly inferred throughout Scripture. In fact, the Bible's expectations about one's relationship to the local church really begins with the more general idea about being separated from the unsaved world. For example, the moment God called Abraham out from among the Chaldeans in Genesis 12, God commanded Israel to stand apart from the rebellious nations around them, and to be identified as part of God's covenant nation. We read in Leviticus 20, 26, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now as God's redemptive history progressed from the old covenant to the new, we learn much about God's expectations for the role of the local church in the book of Acts. And in the days immediately following Jesus' ascension, we see the first appearance of the local church, at least in its tiny embryonic form, as 120 people came together for a common purpose. We read in chapter 1, verse 14 of Acts, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Through the ministry of the apostles, Many in Jerusalem repented and believed. And we see that this original band of 120 people grew significantly larger as others identified with them. We read in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 41, So those who received his word, that is Peter's, were baptized. And there was added that day about 3,000 souls. And the next verse informs us 
that Luke's use of the word added wasn't a reference to the universal church, but to the observable community of believers who were collectively identifying themselves as Christ's disciples and submitting themselves to the authority of the apostles' teaching. We read in chapter 2, again in Acts, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to breaking of bread and the prayers. In other words, those who were called by God to an authentic, saving faith actually changed their lifestyle and outwardly identified themselves with an explicit collection of people to advance the gospel and continue growing in the faith. Now, later in Acts 4, we see that the idea of being identified with this rapidly growing Jerusalem church, it wasn't just a matter of submitting oneself to the authority of the apostles' teaching, but it involved something even more, some form of commitment one to another. We read in 4.32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Moving on to Acts 5, we see even further evidence that the notion of being identified with the Jerusalem church, this wasn't just an empty profession. It apparently cost something, so much so that some looked on and considered and chose to keep themselves on the outside. We read in 5:12 through 13, listen to this. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. You see, the phrase, none of the rest dared join them, indicates that there were two groups of people. Those who admired them from a distance and those who actually joined themselves to them. In the next few chapters, we read about the Jews' persecution of the Jerusalem church and the scattering of the church throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, with the result that the gospel advanced in these regions, calling out God's elect unto salvation, after which these new disciples attached themselves to local churches patterned after the church in Jerusalem. And finally, in Acts 16, we discover that these local churches appeared throughout Asia Minor weren't static. They weren't hollow organizations to which folks simply attached their name. Through the preaching of the gospel, churches grew both numerically and in spiritual depth. We read in Acts 16.5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And so we see from the chronicles of the apostolic church that there was far more, far more to being a Christian than having a private personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as important as that is. From the book of Acts, we discover that believers were set apart from the general public. They were added to the community of the local church. They were submitted to apostolic doctrine. They were committed to one another in ways that defied their former lifestyles. And they grew in spiritual depth with one another. Now, in addition to the church in Acts, the very structure of church leadership revealed in Scripture infers something about one's identification with 
and submission to the authority of the local church. When Jesus instituted the church, he established the eldership to lead and govern his church. Peter writes about this in his first epistle. In chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we read, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Naturally, if there's an established leadership, then there's also a group of people submitted to the authority and the care of that leadership, as the following verses make clear. We read in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And as we read a few moments ago in Hebrews 13, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. These passages assume that some form of mutual trust and commitment exists between those who have the responsibility to shepherd and those who are shepherded. None of these passages accommodate the notion that the believer is called, as one writer puts it, to sail their own little ship their own little way. Right? There's far more to being a Christian than having a private, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Nowhere in Scripture do we see a place for the self-rule and autonomy advocated by so many professing Christians in our contemporary culture. Nowhere in Scripture do we find the idea that the believer can relate to the local church as a mere spectator, kind of like a perforated connection so that when the whole thing becomes too inconvenient or too threatening to their autonomy, they can tear themselves away without consequence. So through a brief review of the church's early history in Acts, as well as a brief review of biblical leader, church leadership, we see that, yes, indeed, Scripture expects every believer to be faithfully committed to and faithfully participating in the fabric of a local New Testament church. Okay. Question one answered. The answer is yes. And so now if we recognize the, that, that the, our faithfulness to the local church is not merely a recommendation but a requirement, we have to pause and ask ourselves why. Why is commitment and submission to the local church so vital for God's redeemed people? Well, there could be many answers to this question, but today I want to focus on two. Right? There are at least two reasons why a commitment and submission to the local church is so vital for you and for me. Let me first describe these and then I'll speak to these in detail. Well, the first reason is that God has chosen the local church as the proving grounds upon which the authenticity of our faith is assured. The local church is the means by which God ministers assurance to your soul. Second, 
there is an aspect to our sanctification that cannot be realized apart from a biblically meaningful association with the local church. So those are the two reasons. Let's look at each of those in detail. Okay, first reason. Okay, why is commitment to and submission to the local church so vital? Reason one, because God has chosen the local church to be the proving grounds upon which the authenticity of your faith is assured. Now, there are many defining marks of an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ. But our Lord emphasized one particular mark as especially characteristic of his indwelling presence. And we read this in John 13, beginning in verse 34. John writes, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. And you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In fact, Paul explained to Timothy that the love Christ commands of his followers is one of the driving purposes of the ministry. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, he writes, The aim of our charge is love, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then Peter charges his readers to pursue Christ-imitating love in his first epistle, where he writes in 1 Peter 1, verses 22 and 23, he said, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So, You can't escape this. Scripture is replete with the reality that the authenticating mark of Christ's indwelling presence is a love of the brethren. You see, not only is our love for one another to be something that galvanizes the attention of a watching world, but as I've just mentioned, John explained in his later epistle that it's also one of the chief tests by which we are to examine our own condition. Right? John writes in 1 John 3, 14, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that, John? How do we know that we have passed out of death into life? John answers, because we love the brothers. You see, I, I want you to notice this as well. Throughout Paul's letters to the churches, it was his observation of their increasing love for one another that persuaded Paul of their authenticity. Consider Paul's greeting to the Thessalonian church and how Paul pairs the ideas of a growing faith with an increasing love for one another. Listen to what Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. He said, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Why, Paul? Because your faith is growing abundantly. How do we know that? And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And you see the same pattern in Paul's writing where where he's persuaded of the saints' authenticity of faith by virtue of their growing love for one another. He makes this point in the beginning of Philippians. In Philippians 1 verse 9, he does it at the beginning of his letter to the Colossians in Colossians 1 4. And he does it when he writes to Philemon in verses 4 and 5. So why does Paul exalt brotherly love as a test of authentic faith? Well, at least one reason is that 
such a love is increasingly selfless, operating in complete contradiction to our fleshly nature. In other words, such love as Christ commands of you and I is a supernatural product of Christ's indwelling presence enabled by the gospel. And it's in the context of local church relationships that such love is cultivated, tested, and cultivated yet some more. You see, at the local church, we have to learn to selflessly love people whom we share nothing in common with except our citizenship in heaven, the most significant thing. Humanly speaking, that's impossible. Humanly speaking, that's impossible. You see, in my own family, or amidst a network of Christian friendships of my choosing, there's already a natural affection or attraction. So it's very easy to delude myself into believing that I am loving when in reality, I may not really be loving. See, there might be something in it for me. But in a cross-centered, Christ-focused church, where members are truly converted <coughs> excuse me, and growing in their dependency upon the gospel, it becomes increasingly more difficult, increasingly more difficult to avoid coming face-to-face with our love of self. And as we deepen our understanding of God's love revealed in the gospel, then two things happen. Two things happen. They happen at the same time. Well, they happen together. On one hand, we recognize our own self-love and we fall on our faces in, in repentance and faith. And then at the very same time, we begin to see the fruitfulness of gospel-empowered love for one another in our own lives. Knowing, here's the key, knowing that these actions, they can't be explained by the whims of our own temperament, right? But there's a true radiance of his indwelling presence that's working itself out in our lives. This is how assurance moves from something that's some subjective inner experience to something that is objective and observable because we love the brethren in spite of ourselves. And the only explanation is the power of the gospel working within us. And we need each other to see that even when we can't see that ourselves. And so the local church is the proving grounds upon which Christ imitating love prevails over self-love. And thus, the authenticity of our faith is assured. And this is one reason why the local church is so vital For God's redeemed redeemed people, it ministers objective assurance. (coughs) Now, a second, albeit closely related, reason why a commitment and submission to the local church is so vital for God's redeemed people is because, two, there's an aspect of our sanctification that cannot be realized apart from a biblically meaningful association with the local church. The overwhelming indication of Scripture is that the Holy Spirit uses the soil of steadfastly faithful New Testament community in a particular way to catalyze our growth, a way that cannot be replaced solely by a loose association 
of trusted Christian friendships or even family. Steadfast, biblically faithful relationships anchored in the commitment of New Testament community provide some of the most immediate opportunities for bearing spiritual fruit. The writer of Hebrews provides a particularly sobering piece of evidence that apart from a community of mutual exhortation with one another, we risk being hardened by sin. We read this in Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13, where the writer of Hebrews, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But, but, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers and sisters, do not fail to bring everything to bear about what Scripture reveals to be the true depth and extent of our depravity. Right? Therefore, recognizing, with, recognizing the need to live with a guarded suspicion of your own flesh. Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus warned that each of us is prone to a spiritual blindness precipitated by the self-orientation of our flesh. Jesus warned in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 4, he said, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, your, your eye when, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye writer of Hebrews also speaks to that dimension of New Testament community in which we depend upon each other for mutual encouragement. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, verse 24, he said, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. As Mark Dever writes in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, he says, quote, We must be careful about deluding ourselves. In becoming a member of the church, we are grasping hands with each other to know and to be known by each other. We are agreeing to help and encourage each other when we need to be reminded of God's work in our lives or when we need to be challenged about, our, about major discrepancies between our talk and our walk. For all the reasons just mentioned, membership in the universal church does not eliminate the need for a meaningful commitment to the local church. In fact, Paul's detailed treatment of the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, it's impossible to miss his point that the purpose of the saints' giftedness is for the mutual building up of one another. We read in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And later, same book, chapter 14, verse 12, Strive to excel in building up the church. And yet again in chapter 14, verse 26, Let all things be done for building up. All of these gifts that Paul mentions as necessary for the spiritual health of the body come into their most vivid expression in the local 
visible church. Why? Because these gifts are interdependent. That means they, they don't work by in isolation. Right? They presume a local community of believers committed to each other in an earnest way. Christians were not given particular gifts and functions in order to wander around as, as spiritual nomads or to keep themselves in isolation. Paul again refers to this idea of interdependency in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25, where, where he writes, "...that there may be no division in the body." But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. All the members of a local church are mutually dependent or interdependent with one another. Every member is to selflessly dedicate his or her talents to the body as a whole. A writer by the name of Brian Schwartley, summarizes the necessity of the local church to both our collective and our individual sanctification quite nicely. Warn you, he doesn't, he doesn't hold back any punches here. So he writes, and I quote, Why does Paul often emphasize the fact that Christ's church is an organic body with multiple parts that need to function in harmony for the greater good of the whole? One reason is that Christians are sinners. Believers must continually contend with indwelling sin. God's people need to put off sinful autonomy. The essence of rebellion towards God is to be one's own God, determining for oneself what is good and evil. And he cites Genesis 3.5. Division and disunity in the body of Christ are the results of autonomy in doctrine, which leads to various heresies, and autonomy in behavior leads to sinful deeds. Paul's teaching on the organic nature of the body of Christ strongly condemns the sinful spiritual individualism that is so popular today. Many people do not want to be under a spiritual authority and they do not want any spiritual responsibilities towards others. Thus, they designate themselves the sole authority in ecclesiastical matters and develop a hyper personalistic version of the church for them the church is not a body with cooperating parts that functioned together for the for the good of the whole rather it is viewed as a bunch of isolated atoms that bump into each other once in a while wow now just as our inclusion in the universal church does not eliminate the need for a meaningful commitment to the local church Neither can family take the place of the local body. You see, sometimes the extreme individualism that plagues our cultural thinking causes a man to make their family stand in place of the local church. However, raising up our family in place of our commitment and submission to the local body is ultimately an act of idolatry as we feed our carnal appetite for self-rule, making ourselves into tiny popes under the guise of spiritual leadership or headship in the home. Spiritual leadership and headship in the home is critically important, mind you, but it does not displace the necessity of the local church. Ultimately, faithfulness to the local church 
and the desire to see the local body grow in victorious and faithful obedience to Jesus Christ, it is in its final form an act of confidence in and submission to the headship of Jesus Christ. We are reminded in Ephesians 4, grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This kind of community doesn't just happen. It requires an intentional degree of familiarity with each other. It requires that we spend meaningful time with each other to know and be known. And it means that we take risks in our transparency and vulnerability with each other. And you know what? When we're burned, and we will, we forgive in the strength of the gospel, and we keep moving forward. Even if it means we get burned again. Because, here's why, in our submission to and in our interdependency with each other, that becomes our expression of our submission to and dependency upon the chief shepherd himself. Your desire to see the church work according to its biblical prescription is in fact your submission to the headship of Jesus Christ. So on an earthly level, when it doesn't work and it gets hard and you get burned, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, and in submission to the headship of Christ, you press on because the headship of Christ is worth it. It's worth it. This is the community that we strive to be. So why is commitment to and submission to the local church so vital? For God's redeemed people, two reasons. First, God has chosen the local church as the proving grounds upon which the authenticity of our faith is assured. The local church is the proving grounds upon which Christ imitating love prevails over self-love. And thus, the authenticity of our faith is objectively affirmed. Second, there is an aspect to our sanctification that cannot be realized apart from a biblically meaningful association with the local church. Apart from the accountability and the encouragement of the local body, our leaky hearts are prone to self-deception and hardness. Unity in the universal church does not exempt our need for the local body, nor does family. In fact, if you are not properly related to a local church, dare I say, you are opposing your own spiritual growth. So that's the answer to our second question. Now that moves us to our third question. How, as a body then, can we best recognize and advance what is so obviously Scripture's high view of the local church? Okay. Well, based upon the Scriptures and the reasoning we just considered, I hope you would agree that the essence of what it means to be part of New Testament community begins with the recognition of the local church's necessary role in the life of every believer and expresses itself as an observable commitment to a local church, a commitment that's based upon the transparency, vulnerability, joys, and struggles inherent to living biblically 
interdependent lives with a particular group of saints, co-laboring to grow in Christ and proclaim his gospel. Now, I find in my experience that most people in our circles agree with the essence of New Testament community I just cited. In fact, to be opposed to such a definition shouldn't be considered anti-church membership, but rather anti-church. Now, if you agree that Scripture requires every believer to be substantively committed to a biblically faithful New Testament church, well, then from my point of view, you understand and value church membership. Okay? And that leaves open still another question, which is whether or not church membership is something that needs to be formally institutionalized within the structure of the church. What do I mean by formally institutionalized? Something that, that it, you, you actually physically submit an application, that there's a, there's a, a process of review, uh, some, that your, your desire to join the church is, is formally affirmed, in our case, by a congregational vote. That, that's institutionalized. Okay, that's, that's formal church membership where we wire it into the, 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 the methods of, of, of our way of, of, of living as a church with one another. So, so the question is, is church membership, is this, this attachment to the local body, the, the form around which we are committing to uh, our faithful attachment to a local body, is that something that should be formally institutionalized or is it something that should simply be implicitly recognized without any kind of formal process implicitly recognized by virtue of faithful attendance i come out of it is my habit and 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 way to attend grace and truth therefore i'm a member i'm recognized as a member is that enough should that be sufficient or do we need to appeal to something more formal that's the crossroads we've come to that's really the key question all this boils down to Right? In fact, I, I said everything I said so that we could rightly answer that question. Because that's what, we're, that's what I want to try to address this morning is why do we hold fast to the views of church membership that we do at Grace and Truth? And we can't meaningfully answer that without addressing the first two questions that we just got done speaking about. Now, I want to persuade you, and I'm going to say I'm going to try to persuade you because as you'll see in a moment, there's some wiggle room in this answer. All right? This is not a chapter-verse question. Right? Scripture leaves room for some uh, uh, kind of a bandwidth of viewpoints. But I want to try to persuade you that on the basis of at least three, three observations, three observations, yeah, I'm an engineer, right? three observations, uh, an explicit approach to church membership is both the wisest and most effective means by which we ultimately submit ourselves to Christ's headship. Okay, now these three observations I'm referring to are Scripture's indication of explicit membership, the responsibility of the local church to guard the authenticity of gospel conversion, and third, the unwitting influences of the 21st century culture that you and I are immersed in. So let me kind of go through these one by one. First, let's look at Scripture's indication of explicit membership. Now, again, let's be clear. There isn't any direct language in the New Testament that instructs the local church to practice formal membership. So for that reason, it would be wrong 
to hold a church in contempt if they approach membership differently. Okay, that would not be a sin. It would not be a sin for a church to practice implicit membership, for example, versus explicit membership. That's why I framed this whole issue as a wisdom issue and not an obedience issue. However, however, despite the lack of any explicit instructions in the biblical text, the New Testament writers do seem to tip their hat in favor of formal membership. That is, some kind of mechanism to formally affirm membership uh, in the local body. Okay, now, the first indication of the early church's reliance upon an explicit or formal approach to membership follows from the observation that the early church's recognition of who was in and who was out was apparently very concrete. We can see a clear reference to this in Acts 5.13, which we read earlier this afternoon, where we read that some followers were sympathetic to the apostles' ministry, but they refrained from explicitly identifying with the apostles' teaching. Remember Acts 5.13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So they were as yet on the outside. Throughout Acts, particularly in the accounts of Paul's missionary journeys, we see again this idea of newly converted believers joining with Paul and the other disciples. Another indication that the membership of the early church had had a very crisp and well-defined boundaries is found in the allusion to some sort of list-keeping. Referring to the criteria by which the church should assume the role of being a widow's primary provider, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, he said, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, dot, 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 and a subsequent set of criteria. To be clear, the enrollment Paul is talking about is not about membership in the local body, but it does show that the early church was not bashful about keeping track of who was or wasn't in certain categories. And it seems quite evident that Paul directed the churches to keep enrollment lists of eligible widows. So there was at least that. There was at least this notion of enrollment lists of eligible widows that church was to assume responsibility of care for. Now we also know that the Lord himself keeps a list of all believers who will inherit eternal life. Referring to the arrival of the new Jerusalem, John writes in Revelation 21, verse 27, he said, Nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And in fact, this this idea of, of a list of the regenerate comprising what the scriptures refer to as the Lamb's book of life is not only referenced here in Revelation 21, but it's also referenced in Psalm 69, verse 28. And in fact, you may recall, we just spoke of it a few weeks ago, as Paul mentions it in Philippians 4, verse 3. Okay, so the point here is that it's clear there's some form of list-keeping culture that, that the early church practiced, and we see it's a frame of thought that our own Lord is not shy about. Uh, so therefore, it, it would seem to be very reasonable that if all this is true, and it was very, uh, the early church 
uh, apparently had a very concrete understanding of who was and wasn't part of them. The, the obvious explanation is they kept lists. They kept track of who was a member and who wasn't. But all that said, I think the chief evidence that I think swings the issue um, with regard to Scripture's indication that there was a formal form of membership in the early church is the sobering charge to church members and their leaders in Hebrews 13, particularly Hebrews 13, 17. We read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, when understood in the context of similar exhortations in Scripture, this is not a reference to some sort of vague, untraceable connection between the flock and their under-shepherds. Right? This passage implies that there is a specific constituency for which the elders will have to give an account. Well, who is that constituency? Is it anyone that walks through that front door? What about someone who's been regularly attending for a couple of months? Are they part of this charge? Certainly, there is a sense in which all of us have a general accountability to serve those who have chosen to come alongside Grace and Truth Bible Church. And both Joseph and I desire to sacrificially serve any with need. Those things are true. But, but Hebrews 13, 17 is speaking of a particular accountability that strongly suggests that there must be an explicit means by which one present among the local church is biblically accountable for their submission to the elders. And the elders are biblically accountable for overseeing their sanctification. See, a, a bit of sanctified common sense would suggest that an explicit declaration of such intention through some formal acknowledgement of membership seems to be the obvious means with which to inaugurate such an accountability. So this is the first observation. The scriptural evidence seems to tip in favor of an explicit means of recognizing membership. Okay? Again, not, not a wholesale directive. There's room there. But I think if you would say on the basis of scripture, you believe scripture infers some sort of implicit recognition of membership, I think your argument is very weak. And I think the stronger argument is that there is obviously some form of explicit affirmation of membership, that which actually inaugurated the accountability we just spoke of in Hebrews 13. So that's the first observation. There's two more. The second observation as to why an explicit, formal approach to the church membership is perhaps the wisest and most effective means with which to approach membership in our current age is this. Uh, it comes down to the responsibility of the local church to guard gospel conversion, to guard the authenticity of gospel conversion. So what do I mean by that? Well, let me say that at this point, I, I hope you recognize from everything we've said so far up to this point that I'm not advocating some sort of membership status whose sole purpose is to differentiate who can and can't vote during a member meeting. All right? I'm talking about a concept of membership that has far more depth than that. The, 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 the one another's of Scripture can't be lived out in our own strength. They require the supernatural ministry of Christ indwelling spirit. We talked about this when we talked about love as the authenticating mark of our conversion. And thus, the sanctifying mission of the local church 
is only realized if its participants have actually been genuinely converted from death to life. While everyone is welcome to attend our services, we must take care to ensure that those who are constituents of our biblical community are indeed believers. You see, to protect the integrity by which the community of professing saints is actually under the sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit, we have to guard the body against those who either, one, would seek to infiltrate and destroy, or for our purposes today, that two, those who believe themselves to be properly reconciled to God, but in fact remain unregenerate because they have never come to the point of authentic faith and repentance through the quickening work of a biblically faithful gospel. Now, I'm not promoting elitism. I'm simply acknowledging what the scriptures take for granted, that the community of the New Testament church is designed for the building up and equipping of the saints. If we're sloppy about admitting into fellowship the unregenerate, well, well, then we mock the sanctifying ministry of the church. We invite strife and divisiveness. And we unwittingly promote dependency upon self rather than a dependency upon grace. Why? Because we're setting ourselves up to do what can't be done with unregenerate people, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. As a result of all this, we weaken, maybe even destroy our testimony to the world, and we ensnare other believers with a double-minded picture of what walking in faith actually looks like. So the question becomes, how do we fence the body How do we protect our biblical community from the influences of the unconverted church member? Answer, a formal approach to the church membership helps us secure the biblical integrity of our New Testament community. When we admit someone into membership, what we are doing is we are are publicly declaring that we believe to the best of our ability in the authenticity of the new member's conversion. Right? It means that the elders in particular and, and the body at large have applied some level of due diligence and discernment to satisfy ourselves that those with whom we co-labor in the name of Christ are indeed genuinely of his flock. A- again, as Mark Dever writes in his book, The Deliberate Church, he writes, quote, the health of any local church hangs in large part on the question of whether its members are spiritually alive. Dead members spread the diseases that are decomposing their souls, all of which are gangrious forms of unrepentant sin. So what we are interested in here is preserving the regeneracy of local church membership and thereby preserving the corporate testimony of the local church and the surrounding community. End quote. So that's the second observation. First observation, I think, I think the scriptures tip in favor of an explicit approach to membership. Second reason, it's incumbent upon you and I to protect the integrity and authenticity of gospel conversion. Right? The, the, the one and others of scripture, the call to grow in Christ is not accessible to an unbeliever. It's simply not accessible. And if you welcome into fellowship, if you, if you affirm uh, the, the assumption that, that one's a believer and draw them into fellowship 
with the local body, and, by, and that, I'm using that fellowship word in a very, very precise way. I'm using the word fellowship to mean co-laboring together to grow in Christ. That's impossible for an unbeliever. How do we protect this? How do we ensure that the church really is a band of believers striving together to labor hard after growth in Christ and the proclamation of his gospel? We have to have some form of due diligence to validate that those who are among us are in fact truly of the flock. And a a formal approach to membership does that. Third reason, third and last reason, and then we'll summarize all of this. Third reason I'd suggest to you is the unwitting influences of this 21st century that consumes you and I. We have to, we got to pull the bus over and, and recognize that if, if we think we are free and clear of the cultural sensibilities that we're immersed in, we, we flatter ourselves. It's a constant warfare. And it's a constant discovery, even below, I usually like to say, below the level of our verbal expression. There's things throbbing through the way we think and feel that are more greatly informed by the culture in which we live than truly by the word of God. You and I will spend a lifetime vetting those out and slaying them. However, while it would be uncharitable to claim that everyone opposed to formal church membership is in patent rebellion against the death-to-self pursuit of Christ, I, I do want to raise an alarm to the very real possibility that one or more sin issues may be influencing your reasoning, particularly those subtle sin patterns that are insidious, operating at the deepest core of our fleshly being, exasperated by the mindset of the culture in which we are all immersed. Okay, there are at least three specific sin issues that could motivate one to reject a formal approach to the church membership. Okay, in fact, when manifested to an even stronger degree, these same issues could very well motivate an all-out anti-church sentiment, which actually is also running rampant among the professing uh, church. So the first consideration is the flesh's inclination towards self-rule, which in the final analysis is that which drives in some an unwillingness to place themselves under the authority of a local church and its eldership. And as we've touched upon already in discussing how the local church is necessary for our sanctification, this kind of thinking is strongly propelled by a sinful, overdeveloped individualism and self-direction that saturates the thinking of our culture, saturates the thinking of our day. Those under the influence of their self-rule often claim to be in submission to the church, but their submission is entirely upon their terms. In the final analysis, they're unwilling to place themselves in an environment that has the potential to challenge the preservation of their own autonomy. An environment in which the ministry of the word described in Hebrews 4 verses 12 through 13 pierces into their inner strongholds, the inner strongholds of their being, decimating their self-rule. They're unwilling to put themselves in the way of that. Of course, of course, this reasoning presumes that men, that the men in positions of eldership are biblically qualified, their leadership and teaching is biblically faithful, and the means by which they discharge their office is biblical. 
If in good conscience one cannot affirm such criteria, then it is actually incumbent upon that individual to separate from that church and submit yourself to a local body where these things are true, where in good conscience you can affirm those things to be true, but submit you must to a local body. That's the first sin issue, our our passion for self-rule. Another sin issue, potentially driving one's resistance or reluctance to a formal approach to church membership, is simply selfishness and unwillingness to invest oneself in the lives of others or at least limit one's willingness to do so selectively according to their particular timing and agenda. Those under this influence desire to be tethered to the local body but not constrained by the local body. They may desire the benefits of New Testament community, but ultimately they are unwilling to bear a responsibility towards others that at times, and increasingly so, may demand the denial of their interests and preferences. That's the second sin issue. Selfishness. Self-rule, selfishness. And the last one, the third sin issue, potentially driving one's resistance to a formal approach to church membership, it is an unwillingness to trust others in general and an unwillingness to trust authority in particular. Now, those under the influence of this thinking may have had legitimately negative experiences in the past, victims of prior abuse or inept church leadership. Now, this is a larger topic than what we have time to discuss, but ultimately, ultimately, an unwillingness to trust horizontally is an unwillingness to trust vertically. Now, I'm not claiming that a formal approach to the church membership is a, is a silver bullet that will completely and forever dispel all of these issues, if only it were that easy. Okay? But what I am saying, I'm saying this, that churches that reject the notion of formal church membership, that is, those who appeal to a more implicit approach, you attend, therefore you are, they are at greater risk of failing to expose and root out these sinful patterns of thought that are so popular in today's culture, yes, even among believers, even among believers, even amidst you and I. So the commitments and the expectations of, of, of a formal approach to church membership, it's yet one more, one more tool that can be used to slay that kind of sin. So we talked about a lot. We were over much territory. So let me try to wrap all this up and sort of resummarize it in, a, in compact form. We considered three questions that relate to this topic of church membership. First, we asked, does Scripture require every believer to be in a committed relationship with a local church? Because frankly, there are people out there that would say, no, it doesn't. Well, yes, it does. We began with the observation that one's relationship to the local church begins with the more general idea about being separated from the unsaved world. From there, we then looked at the development of the early church in the book of Acts and also considered implications from the New Testament's prescriptions of church leadership. We saw that there's far more to being a Christian than having a private, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as important as that is. We noted that nowhere in Scripture do we find the idea that the believer can relate to the local church as a mere spectator, a perforated connection, so that when the whole thing becomes too inconvenient or too 
threatening to their autonomy, they can simply tear themselves away without consequence. You simply don't see that in the scriptures. Yes, scriptures do indeed require every believer to be in a committed relationship with the local church. Well, if that's the case, why? Why is commitment and submission to the local church so vital for God's redeemed people? That's the second question we ask. And we said, well, there are at least two good reasons why uh, commitment and submission to the local church is so vital for God's redeemed people. We said, first, God has chosen the local church as the proving grounds upon which the authenticity of our faith is assured. Right? The local church is the proving grounds upon which Christ imitating love prevails over self-love. And thus, the authenticity of our faith is, is visibly affirmed. And then second, there's an aspect of our sanctification that cannot be realized apart from a biblically meaningful association with the local church. Apart from the accountability and encouragement of the local body, our leaky hearts are prone to self-deception and hardness. Unity in the universal church does not exempt our need for the local body, nor does family. We said if, if you are not properly related to a local church, brothers and sisters, you are opposing your own spiritual growth. And then lastly, we ask, those two things being true, how then as a body can we best recognize and advance Scripture's high view of the local church? Well, we said if you agree that Scriptures require every believer to substantively attach themselves to a biblically faithful New Testament church and that this attachment involves a certain level of observable commitment and mutual expectations, then Brothers and sisters, I argued that you understand and value church membership. You likely have or are developing a high view of the local church and your commitment to the local church as an expression of your confidence in and submission to Christ's headship. So the question then becomes, well, whether or not the question becomes one of whether or not the recognition of membership is something that should be formally institutionalized within the structure of the local church or whether such membership is something that should simply be implicitly recognized. Right? And I attempted to persuade you that on the basis of three observations, an explicit approach to church membership is both the wisest and most effective means by which to submit ourselves to Christ's lordship. And those three observations we're referring to our first scripture's indication of explicit membership. It's not an exact thing. It seems to be a, an inferred thing or a, a presupposition that's there in, in all the other goings on, but it does appear to be there. Two, the responsibility of the local church to guard the authenticity of gospel conversion. And then thirdly, the unwitting influences of the 21st century culture that you and I are immersed in. And we said there were three things in that little category that we had to be aware of the flesh's inclination towards self-rule. Secondly, a selfish unwillingness to invest ourselves in the lives of others. And three, an unwillingness to trust others in general and an unwillingness to trust others or trust authority in particular. All three of those things are sort of forces in our cultural thinking that are sort of insidiously broadcasting itself into the fabric of our soul. We're not careful, it will influence how we think, and then we will call it virtue and describe it as biblical, when in reality that thinking is straight from the pit of hell. So let me close with this thought, brothers and sisters. If we, if we really want to be a body 
whose response to the gospel is authentically supernatural. Something that's increasingly difficult, increasingly more difficult for the unregenerate to mimic. Something that is progressively rooting out our own blind spots and self-deception. And shouldn't our commitment to the headship of Jesus Christ and his authority and our commitment to one another be something we want to joyfully proclaim, something we celebrate, something we strive after in complete dependence upon God's grace in our lives? Yes, we would want to do that. We would want to do that. Oh, Lord, you have blessed your people with your church and you have promised in your church's vitality your church's growth you promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against it despite the fact that there's every earthly reason why it should so lord if nothing else may our our review of these scriptures this morning continue to increase the height of our high view of your local church May we, may we grow in our persuasion of the importance of your local body. It is not something, Lord, that is merely a recommendation. It is that, Lord, which to defy the local church is to defy you. So, Lord, give us wisdom in how to best drive forward as, as a local body, as a community of believers who seek to, to advance the gospel and grow uh, in our fruitfulness one to another, thereby bearing evidence of gospel reality. Lord, warm our hearts. Make, give us teachable spirits. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.